Welcome to Lasso Lessons. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Kathy Buckman. We've reached the middle of season two of Ted Lasso. We're at episode five, Rainbow, which opens with Nate to Frankie Avalon crooning, swinging on a rainbow, peering into a taste of Athens, eyeing the table in the window. He wants to make a reservation for what he sees as this highly desirable table for his parents' 35th anniversary. Since we brought up ages last time, Kathy, how old do you think Nick Muhammad is in real life? Oh, my goodness. Uh, early 30s? Nick Muhammad is 41. So the math here is a little suspect. A little sus, as the kids would say, but we'll leave that alone. As he awaits the outcome of the hostess's consultation with her manager about his request, he watches, and we watch too. Roy Kent on a TV in the restaurant talking with the other pundits about the efficacy of Isaac as captain of Richmond. Now, we should remember that Roy, at Ted's insistence, personally chose Isaac to replace him as captain. So Roy has a personal stake here. When the hostess rebuffs Nate, he thinks to mention that he knows Roy Kent, hoping that this might help him score the table. The hostess tells Nate that should Roy Kent ever want the window table, he should let her know. A quick note here, the hostess actually starts by asking Nate if Roy is his dad. And by the way, Brett Goldstein, who plays Roy Kent, is 42. <laughs> so he and Nick are pretty much the same age. And we've noted earlier how common, in this season especially, how common the themes of fathers and sons are in Ted Lasso. It's a theme that we'll see again in this episode. Okay. And that's the engines for both the main plots of this episode are set in motion. Let's follow Nate's story for a bit. After this minor humiliation, Nate quickly suffers a few others. When Nate suggests that he can speak with Isaac one big dog to another, Ted suffers a rare lapse in emotional intelligence when he mistakes this for a joke. Shortly thereafter, Keeley reluctantly refuses to let Nate take one of the coffee machines that the manufacturer has given the club so that the players can Instagram themselves using it. This causes Nate to turn to Keeley to ask if she can make him famous so he can enjoy the fruits that fame brings. Lots of free stuff and groupies, Keeley admits. Still, while she won't help him with that, she does bring him to Rebecca so that they can conduct a workshop of sorts on how to be assertive. And it's interesting here, as they do this workshop, when first pressed to speak up for himself, Nate shows extreme petulance, even anger, calling Keeley, who's playing the hostess in their little scenario, a dithering kestrel, which sounds worse than it is. Kathy, do you know what a kestrel is? I believe it is a bird. Yes. This sounds very rude, but it's actually kind of funny. I think this may remind us a bit that Nate does have another mode besides this shambling, hesitant one he usually displays, especially in times of stress. Remember that cutting insult comic mode we saw in the first season where he addresses the whole team. Armed with these new skills and maybe a new view of himself, when Nate arrives at A Taste of Athens with his parents for their anniversary dinner, and they are immediately shown a table in the back of the house, Nate in a much more assertive manner, asks for the table in the front. And it should be noted, makes it clear that they will be spending a good bit of money and will leave quickly. It's not just him being more assertive, but he actually kind of figures out a negotiating tactic with the hostess. The hostess complies and we see Nick and his parents seated in the window. It's a small thing, but the final shot of this sequence is from outside the restaurant, looking through the window at a smiling Nate. And I do think this makes us wonder, why did Nate want this table so much? Do his parents really seem to care? My read on this whole episode is there's a theme here about branding and that Nate wants to increase the value of his own personal brand. And there's something about seeing and being seen that's really integral to the idea of your own personal brand. 
And we'll dig into that later. I think he does want his parents to benefit too, but this really seems to be about the way he is perceived. And I have to keep thinking back to that very first shot of this season, that extreme close-up of Nate on the sidelines with the other coaches. And it seemed to indicate that Nate would be key to the season. And I do wonder in this episode, right in the middle of the season, can't believe that this is the end of the journey for Nate. Oh, no, I agree. He's on a season-long arc. And so this is just half of it. So let's leave Nate in the window there. We'll get back to him later. But before we turn our attention to the other major story, which seems to be about Isaac and quickly about Roy as well, before we do that, let's talk about the C storyline briefly. Rebecca on Banter, which is the dating app that Keeley's promoting, is talking to her mystery man. At Keeley's suggestion, she admits to herself and to the mystery man that she is looking for love. And almost magically at that moment, Higgins shows up. Uh, He literally pops up. And of course, that makes sense because he's kind of the show's avatar of matrimonial love. He and his wife are the only long-term couple we see in the show. Keely and Roy may be on their way there. Another side note, when Higgins does show up here, one of the first things he says to Rebecca is that Rob McElney and Ryan Reynolds have approached him about buying the club. And it seemed probably at the time just like a random weird joke that made no sense. However, Rob McElney and Ron Reynolds, in fact, have purchased the club. They purchased a non-British Premier League club, a lower level club in Wrexham, Wales. And this purchase and their experiences are now featured in the show, Welcome to Wrexham. Oh, so that's what that was about. It's funny. I had no reference point for that the first time I watched the episode, but of course now it makes perfect sense. They're making a sly illusion to a show that probably wouldn't exist without Ted Lasso. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine uh, a show like that being green-lighted prior to the incredible success of Ted Lasso. By the way, I have started watching Welcome to Wrexham, and I think that if you enjoy watching Americans get tangled up in British football, you might enjoy that show too. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. We discovered that his phone's ringtone that indicates his wife is calling is the Rolling Stones' She's a Rainbow a song that the two of them heard upon first meeting. This is an atypical song for the Stones, pretty much a straight up love song. No notes of cynicism or darkness that we tend to expect from the Stones. Yeah, that song Rainbow is pretty far away from other Rolling Stones songs about women like, I don't know, Under My Thumb, which I think (laughs) is probably one of the most unromantic songs I think anybody's ever written. Hagen talks about, in that moment, trying to be a brooding punk, but discovering that maybe just being the best brand is being yourself. Yeah, and this episode is all about love in the end. We haven't mentioned it yet, but there are elements of romantic comedy tropes and plot points and visual gags that are going to repeat again and again in this episode. Now back to Isaac and Roy. On the pitch, we see Isaac screaming at Jan Moss about an error that leads to a goal. Later, the team is watching film of the game. Isaac dresses down Jan again, who kind of confusedly to Isaac says, yes, that goal was entirely my fault. Demonstrating the other side of what we have been identifying as that Dutch open communication style that we've seen from Jan. Absolutely. I think that we talked a little bit about how some people perceive the downsides of a very direct communication style is that people are very free with direct criticism. But the upside is that if you're truly inhabiting this style, you're 
perfectly willing to critique yourself if you feel it's deserved. Ted steps in to say that while some say that something is wrong with the team, that's not the way he sees it. I believe in communism, rom communism, that is, he says. And after the team identifies a host of stars from romantic comedies, he tells them if they can go through some lighthearted struggles and end up happy, then so can we. You got to believe that everything's going to work out in the end. Yeah, this is more of that cognitive reframing that we've been talking about. And I'll have more to say about that later. Yeah, he goes on to talk about the inevitable dark forest at the heart of these stories, promising that since they are in the dark forest, that can't be the end. They got to get out. I love this notion. Well, you know, in the stories, the dark forest is in the middle. So we're in the dark forest. So that must be the middle of the story. And we got to get out of it. It will all work out. Maybe not how you think it will, or you hope it does, but it will work out, he says. Our job is to have zero expectations and just let go. And we'll return to this interesting bit of advice in a bit. Side note here, all this is being watched by Dr. Sharon, who has previously sort of advised or insinuated to Ted that his style can be maybe a little too on results oriented. <laughs> we certainly hear it's all about the journey. She's taking her notes, shaking head. And in fact, with the coaches gathered, she offers her help, which Ted turns down. So we'll come back to Dr. Sharon in a second. And yet another side note, when Nate suggests that the cause of Isaac's issues could be piles, Coach Beard says that while he has accepted aubergine and snogging piles, he can't abide. Now, this is a callback to all the differences between British and American English. In English, we call piles hemorrhoids, aubergine is eggplant, and snogging is probably closest to making out, although maybe the kids have a more precise term today. This little note ends with Coach Beard yelling to Nate through the office glass partition that he's okay with Fanny, and I'll let you look that one up on your own. Yeah, another one that gets you in trouble is knickers. Yes. Okay. We find Roy at a kebab shop, and humorously and fittingly for the show, he's demanding that if the proprietor wants to keep Roy's signed photo up in the shop, he's got to give Roy free kebabs. By the way, Roy, in his taciturn way, has endorsed that photo that's up there with a single word, yum. <laughs> By the way, if you want to have a little fun, check out the other photos there and see if you can tell why they're there. When Ted shows up, we quickly realize that we are now in Ted's rom-com world. Ted says, I want to have what he's having in reference to a line from a classic of the genre, When Harry Meets Sally. And this and another, Tom Cruise's and Renee Zellweger's Jerry Maguire will provide the touchstones for the romantic comedy throughout the episode. And just a side note here, actually this sort of rom-com approach had been set up in the previous episode, Carol of Bells, where we see uh, a scene replicated from yet another rom-com, this one, Love Actually, set in London. In it, Roy's niece, Phoebe, visits her antagonist's home on Christmas Day and uses cards to tell him something without his parents knowing. If you don't know the scene, we'll put a link in the show notes so you can see how it's replicating that scene from Love Actually. Which I love, by the way, the, the person holding the cards in that movie is the actor that most Americans know from The Walking Dead, Andrew Lincoln. It quickly becomes clear that Ted would like Roy to come back to Richmond as a coach. This is, in effect, the form of seduction he's engaging in. But Roy says he's happy in what he's doing and that he's good at it. People tweet about me, which is perhaps a reflection that he's getting tight with Keeley, who does social marketing. And honestly, there is no real reason that Roy would leave besides the simple logic of the rom-com, that things just work out. I love that the owner comes over and suggests that Ted and Roy are father and son. Again, another suggestion of father and son. 
when Ted says no, former coach, the shop owner says same thing. And Ted nods because he has, in fact, suggested a couple of times previously that being a coach is a lot like a father. The shop owner then tells a story about how he had been in med school and was good at it, but it was just not what he was meant to do. I love the look that Roy gives here, like, this is too on the nose. <laughs> Again, it's just this sense of fate that's being played out. Yeah, I think in rom-coms, you often have minor characters or small characters, in particular pivotal scenes that offer some kind of nudge to the couple that is trying to get together. And I think this is one of those scenes. Yet another side note, the season started with Nate asking if he could say a prayer, and we have seen some other religious illusions explored. In the kebab shop, Roy says that Ted has invaded his church, to which Ted responds, who knew that transubstantiation could happen with a pita? Now, this is another really Catholic reference. Transubstantiation is when, according to Catholic doctrine, under the priest's blessing during the mass, the wine and Eucharist, the bread-like host, actually changes into Christ's body and blood. Literally, yes, Literally, as a former Catholic, I can state this. At the very end of the scene, Ted once again kneels down and crosses himself. And this is the second time, and he's such a natural at it that I had to go out and do a bit of research. I had assumed that with a name like Sudeikis, he had been raised Greek Orthodox, if anything, but he was in fact raised Catholic. Roy does agree to see what he can do to help get Isaac out of his head. To do so, he introduces Isaac to the pickup soccer game that happens in the shadow of the towers in which he grew up. All to Blur's song two. And yes, that's another thing I had to look up because I was sure that was a song from the 2000s, but it's a 90s song. It's from 1997, to be precise. The point is to renew his love for the game. In their discussion afterwards, Ted nearly again quotes when Harry met Sally when he says, when you realize that you want to spend the rest of your life coaching with somebody, you want to start the rest of your life ASAP. And then right into Jerry Maguire, you complete our team, which Roy shuts down completely at this point. Now we go to the big day of the match. And again, there's an interesting scene right before the match where Dr. Sherrod approaches Ted. And Ted in the scene, I have to say, has seemed even more enthusiastic, maybe a bit manic. When she asks him how he is, he says, I'm just dealing with the terror of knowing what this world is about. <laughs> and he says it is open kind of comic Ted-like way. But once again, he turns her down. She says, my door is always open. And as you know, we don't watch the series too far ahead, but let's say, spoiler alert, that in the next episode, this invitation and what we're seeing from Ted here, I think, kind of plays out. On the set of the pundit show before the match, Roy has a sudden realization about the inanity of punditry. I don't know, he says, when asked how things are going to go. All we do is guess what a bunch of little pricks are going to do out there. We don't know. Of course we don't know. His tone starts with frustration, turns almost existential, and then as he realizes that he's not on the pitch with them, encouraging them to be better than they could ever be. And then we see... Isaac leading the team in a very inspired and fun way. And Roy can see the effect it's had on Isaac. I miss all of it, he says. And to She's a Rainbow, he departs the studio. This isn't what I'm meant to do. He runs, he takes a cab, even a paddock cycle. And again, this replicates many scenes and many rom-coms of one of the two protagonists, or sometimes both of them, running towards each other, all to arrive at the sidelines. You had me at coach, he tells Ted. 
And as he takes his place alongside the other coaches, our two main stories come together. Nate, who had arrived at the stadium well-tailored and with body language that reflected his newfound confidence, suddenly in Roy's unexpected presence shows signs of confusion and discomfort. And I think Nick Muhammad here plays this perfectly. You can actually sort of see him visually deflating. And we have to wonder, I think, where all this newfound ambition will go. All right. Well, great. So that's our extended look at this episode. Kathy, I think you've spotted some themes. Yeah. I mean, of course, I love the rom communism and the rom com elements just as pure television. And there's so much pleasure in recognizing all of the lines and scenarios. But I do think that the reason that Ted is introducing the rom-communism thing is not just to serve a fun episode. It's also another example of his coaching style and a particular element of his coaching style that we've talked a lot about as a way that could be helpful to anybody in any setting. And that is, of course, cognitive reframing. Cognitive reframing. I think I've heard that before. Yeah, we first talked about cognitive reframing in the pod we did about season one, episode eight, Diamond Dogs. And in fact, this was the whole purpose of the Diamond Dogs, that group that included Higgins, Ted, Nate, and Coach Beard. So what is cognitive reframing? Cognitive reframing is something that you do when you notice you're having a strong emotional reaction to something. You step back and you try to see things differently, usually in a more balanced way, you try to separate out your emotion and essentially take a new frame on things. And if you can give the situation new meaning, it's possible that your emotional reaction will be different too. How do you see that work in this episode? In rom-communism, according to Ted, you need to believe that after going through struggle, you're going to be okay in the end. And by doing this, what Ted is doing is he's referencing the whole idea of story structure something that screenwriters and executive coaches really have in common. Executive coaches help people find their stories and help them essentially write for themselves a better story. So if you can say stories don't start and end in the dark forest, what you're essentially doing is reframing the struggle that you're in right now as temporary. You're reframing it as something that you can learn from. And of course, the idea of story structure is associated for most people with the narratologist Joseph Campbell, who studied myths from many, many cultures to chart the structures that seem to be the common elements that make human stories recognizably human. So where all this takes me, I think, is that there's a mode of executive coaching where there are coaches who really focus on how leaders construct the story of the challenge that they're facing. If you, as a leader, are constructing a story where you're the hero in defeat, where that's really the structure of the story, it's hard to be a leader from that place. But if you can change the story to, I am going to be the hero in victory, then you can find a lot more energy and a lot more mental and even physical resources for getting yourself to a better place as a leader. So I think what Ted is doing here is he's using a really familiar concept, romantic comedies. We all know them. Everybody can connect to it. And he's helping the team to understand that the way you tell the story of your work, of your collective endeavor is important. And if you can inspire entire groups to change their story together, maybe this is going to work. 
but what about all this focus on branding and how we're perceived? How does that connect to storytelling? I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that establishing a brand is a lot about creating a story. I think that brand consultants and others who do a lot of work in helping companies build their brands will talk about the brand story. You know, our brains just very naturally go in the direction of a story. So in this episode, we have four characters who are trying to find their way. And the show suggests that there's an element of finding a brand involved for each of them. So let me just name them quickly. We have Nate, who's trying to be more assertive. We have Rebecca, who's looking for a relationship. We have Isaac, who needs to find his feet as the team's captain. And we have Roy, who's trying to figure out the next chapter of his career. So the branding here is about the choice that they make about how they're going to tell their story and how they're going to navigate this transition to get what they want and to be the person that they want to be. Now, because it's Keeley, she's very focused on social media and believes that in some sense, I think, this would be Keeley's point of view, is that, of course, you're just creating a persona on social media. There's something of a choice of who do you want to be and how you want to present yourself on social media. And this is exactly Rebecca's focus. Does she want to be real in her pursuit of love? Or does she want to be a facade and play a game and not reveal her inner self? And we do see her make a really strong, difficult choice to be more vulnerable about who she is. But this brings up the whole idea of authenticity, right? Some people believe you just should always be exactly yourself, and that is your personal brand, and you shouldn't overthink it. And I think this is Higgins's point of view. He says the best brand is just being yourself. And I believe that probably works for him. But I also know there are a lot of people for whom the pursuit of authenticity can be a trap, right? What does he even mean to say, I'm going to try to be more authentically myself, right? Like that's sort of a paradox. As soon as you're trying to be something, aren't you by definition being less authentic? So authenticity is a really difficult thing to set as your goal. It's paradoxical and it drives some people crazy. At the same time, though, the question, who are you, is a question that's worth answering. And for Roy, who's been building this brand as a pundit, the lesson seems to be that just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do it. So I think that Nate's story here about the rebranding campaign is perhaps the most interesting part of this episode. So I want to spend some time on that. Okay, so Mike, I find the Nate story here comical, but also poignant. I think Nate's story here is the most interesting one because I think what Nate is fundamentally trying to do is he's trying to learn how to deal with hierarchy and the neurological and psychological consequences that we all face from living inside of hierarchies. And while you could superficially look at this as trying to brand himself as a more assertive person, I think it goes a lot deeper than that. Yeah, that's undeniable, I think. And it's both the level of the club, it's also the level of society, right? And I think that's what makes it really hard for him. It's just not that he's at the bottom of the club. He's not anymore. But in fact, as the hostess makes really clear, well, if Roy Kent wants to see, sure, Roy Kent can have it. I think that we live in a society in which a lot of the fruits go to the people at the very top, and he's experiencing that all over the place. Absolutely. Let's review it. Let's review all the blows that he has suffered in this episode. He's had an experience where the hostess tells him he can't have the window table. He's not important enough for the window table. Ted, as you mentioned, tells him that he's not a big dog. 
And Nate doesn't get a coffee maker because that's only for the players. He has repeatedly been put in a one down position that has shown him that there are other people who are higher in the hierarchy and are part of an in-group and that he's part of the out-group. It's very funny because Rebecca is like, oh, I'll get you that table at the fancy restaurant. And she's like, wait a minute, you're trying to get the table at a place called the Taste of Athens? He's not even competing for something in her realm. He's not even trying to get something that she would recognize as being valuable. And yet he's still struggling to get it. Yes. And I think we all feel like Nate in our world today, right? Where I'm going with this. So the reason that I think this is so interesting is because I recently saw a webinar that was hosted by psychologist Zwei Kwok, who wrote a book with the title Calm Clarity. And my way of recapping her argument, I don't know if she would fully agree with this, but my way of recapping it is that all of us have trauma from our experiences of being excluded. It really doesn't matter who you are. At some point in your life, you've been put into an outgroup by people who were in an in-group. And that this is really fundamental. We all keep an eye on our status. And when this happens, this is a big wound. And sadly, or maybe unintentionally, when we are in organizations, we get sorted. We get evaluated and we get sorted and that this inevitable activity that happens in an organization is going to reactivate that trauma of feeling like you're being put in an out group. So that is how I'm reading the Nate storyline here. He's struggling to get what he wants, but the challenge isn't just about learning to be assertive, though this is how Rebecca and Keeley see it. He needs to master the neurological response that is going to come for him, the neurological response that he'll be in the grip of in that moment when he's excluded. He needs to find the calm clarity that's going to allow him to navigate that situation with a better version of himself. Because we all become that small, more contracted version of ourselves when we're put into an outgroup. So what really I think unlocks this for Nate is that scene where Keely and Rebecca are trying to rehearse with him about how he can be assertive and there's a role play, which definitely triggers some of my trauma from being in a lot of corporate training, right? Nothing worse than a role play. But when he's having that role play experience, the biggest aha is not the role play. It's what Rebecca says to him, which is that she does not automatically get respect in the way that Nate probably thinks that high status people automatically get respect. She says that every time she walks into the room as the only female football club owner in a group full of men owners, she's in that one down out group position herself. And so all of us experience it and we all have to learn to navigate it and manage it. And interestingly, What Rebecca recommends to him is the Amy Cuddy power pose, that he take up a lot of space and hold a pose that's going to help him have more biochemistry that's going to increase his sense of well-being and give him what he needs neurologically. By Amy Cuddy, you mean the business school professor, I think most recently at Harvard, who's famous in her TED Talk for doing this power pose. Absolutely. Yes. It's a really well-known TED Talk. Yeah, and I think there has been some question about the validity of the research that is behind this. Maybe it's not proven to be quite as efficacious as she had originally thought. However, I think many people have found this to be useful in their lives. 
Absolutely. I mean, this is social sciences. This is not the natural sciences, right? Like maybe you can't replicate the cortisol levels from one study to the next. But to me, what's more important is what people's perceived experiences of doing their power pose and what it makes possible for them. And I know many, many people who have gotten benefit from doing it. So in the episode, Nate goes into the bathroom at A Taste of Athens. He holds his power pose. He comes back out. He finds the hostess. And I think this is what allows him to find the groove that he needs to be polite, to be firm, to ask directly for what he wants without being bullying or obnoxious. He finds the calm clarity that is the better version of himself that he wants to be in this moment. And I would not call that assertive. I would call that grounded. I think there is one thing he does in this power pose presentation that will be repeated maybe later and maybe is indicative of something else going on here, which is he spits on his own image in the mirror, which I think is at least ambiguous in how you might interpret it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I don't know quite what to do with that. Maybe that's sort of the testosterone inducing element here. If we're really focusing on the neurological side of it, maybe that's the more male version of the power pose is to spit on something to hype yourself up a little. You could also take it as someone who's not fully happy with seeing themselves in the mirror, who's not fully happy with the way they appear. There's a number of ways to take it. I think, again, we'll want to revisit it. You had talked, said something about the trauma from doing role plays. And I know you're speaking comically here because I think you have found that in role plays that you have been involved in, people do learn a great deal in a well-constructed, well-executed role play. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't want my humor to mean that I don't think role plays are important. I am somebody who teaches interpersonal skills and there is really no way to practice interpersonal skills except for interpersonally. And so that's why role plays are often used in these kinds of training situations. But I also have some humorous distance on how unpleasant it can be to be told that you're about to do a role play. Or that you're a dithering kestrel. (laughs) That too. So I'm pretty proud of Nate at this point. Has he found his authentic self? Is he being more assertive? I don't know, but he's found a good place where he's getting what he wants in a respectful way. So I'm gonna say that Nate has found his groove, Isaac has found his fun, and it looks like Roy is on the way to finding some meaning. All right, so that's our take on season two, episode five of Ted Lasso, Rainbow. Up next is season two, episode six, The Signal.